come with us. Into the wild wood. And find the magic within. Welcome fellow travellers into the Wildwood, a pagan podcast with your hosts, Lee Johnson, that's me, and Rev Kai. So Hello. I thought, I saw, thought I saw you shake your head, I thought there was something wrong. <laughs> no. I'm imagining things. Um, all right, so usual stuff. If you like our content and you like our live chats and everything else, then please go ahead and hit the thumbs up button and uh, well, join us in the chat. Just saying hello to everybody here at the moment. Lady Capera, Yolandi, Pumiz, uh, Richard, and Yolandi again. <laughs> All right. So today we are doing an advice for the new witch. And if so, therefore, if you do have any questions, because it is advice for the new witch, so we need questions in order to give you advice, um, then just pop them into the live chat and we'll get to those. Um, anything you want to add? Rev Kai? No, sounds good to me. Yeah. I... Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Put you on the spot there. Um, I've actually got two interesting questions that popped up over the past few weeks. Um, one I saw someone ask. It basically, so I'm just trying to get through the the other stuff here. Um, I've heard that sometimes spells can backfire if you don't do something correctly. Is this true? And can it happen if I do a protection spell? Which I thought was quite interesting. How does a protection spell backfire? Well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, if we, if, we, if we put this in a logical framework, if you do a spell incorrectly, it can backfire. A spell can backfire. And then we talk yeah. about protection spells. So, mm. you know, on a logical perspective, it's still a spell. And therefore, we say that spells can backfire. Can a protection spell backfire? I never actually thought about it, and I've been trying to come up with some kind of reason that it could, and I can't think of anything. Well, you know, I can think of an example where we could, we might be able to say that a protection spell backfired. I don't know uh, at the time. A friend of mine uh, did protection work. Don't know if I'd call it necessarily a protection spell because I think that's part of the problem here is a differentiation between uh, just the ongoing work that you do, cleansing, protection, enchantment, that sort of thing, and a spell, mm. which is um, you know a one-off, uh, highly focused, specific instance. Yeah, but true. so they did protection work. Whatever. I don't know exactly what they did. Um, we were just sitting around talking as witches, and they were talking about the first, you know, some of the first things they did as a witch. And um, 
they related it to this protection work that instead of like, um, they were going for, um, on my property, anybody who is an enemy who comes to bring me harm will be easily seen. Mm. And what they kind of got was like, they lit up their property. So that suddenly they could just see all of these things that were bringing them harm. They found termites. They found um, some underground water that was had moved and was flowing under their house and had this huge foundation work mess that they had to do. Uh, they found a bunch of uh, rot and fungal disease in their windbreak. Um, all, that sort of thing. So they did mm. find enemies. And it was easily seen, but I don't know that that's necessarily, I think it worked after we talked about it because of how she described what she did. I'm like, well, it sounds like your magic works just fine. Be careful what yeah. you ask for. So I don't know if that's necessarily a spell backfiring, but I could see, I see how you could interpret it that way, maybe. Mm. I suppose we could also look at what we consider to be backfiring, because as you said, they may have considered it to be a backfire, but it, their work worked. It worked. You know, what they asked for, they got. It reminds me of that um, person who was talking about creating a sigil um, to get true happiness, and Ooh. everything just suddenly started going wrong in their life, and they Ooh, wanted to yeah. know why, why it didn't work, and I said, but it did work. Because to get true happiness, you've got to understand all the pain first. Right. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get there. I mean, just asking for happy, happy, happy days and everything else, that's a different thing. But true happiness, you know, yeah. it's a completely yeah. different story. And I find yeah. that is most often the case when people are like, my magic didn't work. No, it did. You just didn't. Mm. You didn't ask for what you wanted. You did magic for something else. And that's. That's where the whole intent is the only thing that matters argument falls flat on its face. Because mm. if intent was the only thing that mattered, we would never get hung up on magical technicalities. And I think, you know, anybody who's read some folklore knows that uh, technicalities are a big part of magic when it comes to how you put things together, how you phrase things, especially if you're working with spirits. But it happens outside of working with spirits too. Um, about, you know, when it comes to divination, it's super, super important uh, how you phrase the question mm. and who or what you're asking varies across many, many traditions. Some traditions are directly interacting with a specific God or Orisha. Some traditions are interacting with like the concept of the universe as a whole. Some are asking ancestors. But it's always it's always super important that you are um, mindful of what you're asking because mm -hmm. you're going to be answered in that way. So I don't know. I think of backfiring as like sending out a curse. And you get the curse on you instead. Yeah. You know, yeah. you curse somebody with, um, you know, hives and you get hives. That mm. sort of thing. 
or um, I don't know. The other examples I can think of are, are things like it's the technicality thing again. All my bills paid. Okay, sure. Then all your bills show up in order to be paid. Mm. You know, um, I, I knew someone who did a spell for, to have all of their debts erased. And suddenly, not only did it happen financially, but they lost all of their friends. Because nobody owed anybody any favors anymore. Mm. You know? And all their debts were erased, and they were extremely, extremely lonely. So, you know, and I, I don't know. And yeah. I think that's one of those things that, that comes with experience when we're new. We don't really understand the, the nuance and the sense of humor uh, that comes with working magic and paying attention to these technicalities and realizing that you can't just wish it really hard in your heart that what you actually do, what you actually say does make a difference, how you phrase things, um, no matter what your intent behind it is. I think learning that language takes time and experience. You know, we warn people all the time, but eh, we still all have to, stumble and fall and burn our fingers and all of those other analogies we have for uh i listened but i didn't that's <laughs> <laughs> how we learn yeah um Sapo is here and deborah hello welcome and thanks for joining us uh, hello. oh forgot to mention we did hit 100 subscribers so i just want to thank everybody for that uh, for for the support um, let's keep going and get to a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> Set some big goals. All right. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, <laughs> Richard said, uh, the technicalities in spell work reminds me of the guy who asked the genie to be a chick magnet and then started getting followed by baby chickens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Deb asks, "What do you mean by you have to have a sense of humor?" Did you, did we say that? Did you say that? We always have to have a sense of humor. Yeah. Well, um, I think you learn to develop a certain sense of humor when working magic because of stuff like this. No one who works magic for any length of time is um, immune to mistakes. Mistakes mm. are a big part of the process of learning magic and the craft and everything else. And you have to learn to laugh at yourself and you have to learn to laugh at what life serves up. Because if you don't, you're going to cry and be terribly depressed and give up and not practice magic <laughs> straight up. Mm. That's because <laughs> it can be really frustrating. Sometimes it can be um, very very difficult circumstances are often connected with people who practice magic. You don't turn to magic in times of plenty and safety and comfort. If that's your life, you're not, you have no reason to practice magic. You have no reason to pursue it. You have no drive behind it. Uh, you, it just wanting to know is not enough. It's important, 
but it's not enough to actually do magic. There has to be um, a certain kind of desperation involved often, especially early on for the, the impetus to kick off and get things going. And so there is a, there's a sense of humor involved in that. Um, and, and it's the same uh, kind of dark sense of humor that you find among people who, in poverty, that you find among people in dire circumstances who are othered um, into the fringes of society, that sort of thing. Because if you don't laugh, you cry. Mm. Very true. All right, so I've got one other question, but if you guys don't start asking questions, we're just going to sit and stare at each other blankly. Um, so get those questions in there. Yes, yeah, Lee right. and I were uh, talking about our energy levels before we went live, and I described us both as wilted. Wilted, yeah. <laughs> wilted. Uh, um. All right, so this is really, and I get your opinion because uh, I found it found it very curious. When working with the dead, and there's two areas to consider here. First is um, ancestors with uh, ancestor altar, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the other one is graveyard work. Hmm. Do you ever offer blood? Oh, not in the graveyard, no. No. Definitely not. It's actually something that I've come across. Um, it's mentioned in demonolatry. After taking graveyard dirt, you make the, the ZD symbol and you offer blood as a thank you. And I've, I've been thinking about that lately. I'm thinking, hang on a second. You don't offer blood to the dead. Um, didn't think about it previously. But what triggered was talking about um, working with the ancestors. And a person came along, listed all these things about how to work with the ancestors and do graveyard work. And a lot of it was off of blood. Um, this was in a witchcraft community. Uh, so this offering blood to the dead seems to be coming into the craft quite a bit. Hmm. I mean... There are workings where it would be appropriate to offer blood to the dead, but they're not uh, easy, comfortable, mm. um, or safe. Mm. You know, my ancestors don't ask for blood, and I think I'd get kind of sketchy about them if they did. Because uh, my understanding is those are hungry ghosts. And once you feed the hungry ghost life, it will never end. I mean, you know, these are, these are entities that have no interest in preserving life, only consuming it. Mm. Um, and they are ravenous. Um, like the phrase, you know, oh, once they get a taste for blood, you can't stop them about, you know, dogs and chickens, that sort of thing, because it is so valuable and it is so, I mean, it is the essence of life itself. 
which is the mm. thing that the dead are missing. And especially if they're newly dead and still think they can be returned to life. And that's not really the way that cycle goes. You're going the wrong way down the, the tube, you know. Um, then blood would be part of that. Now, I also, you know, think about bloat and offering the flout to the gods and the ancestors at that time. Um, but that's not quite the same as going into the graveyard. And the reason I would never do it in the graveyard is because it, it's like, um, you know, standing in the pool of piranhas and dropping blood. You never know what else is going to be like, oh, that looks tasty. Feed me too. Or not even ask in such a way. Just come to, to feast. Um, mm. And, I mean, not all graveyard work is necessarily anonymous, but a lot of it is. Uh, usually if we're talking about going to our ancestors' graves, the primacy there is our ancestors, not graveyard. Graveyard often means go into a graveyard and find a spirit to work with, not someone you already know. And I don't think that's a, I wouldn't do that. Everybody can do what they want, however they want, it's their life um, and or death. But I wouldn't find someone new I've never worked with and offer blood in exchange, especially newly dead. Yeah, I think one of the other arguments there could be that you are not offering it to the the spirit of the grave. You to the spirit of the graveyard. The you know some traditions that that consider there's a, a spirit which looks over the entire graveyard, keeps all. Yeah, but those usually take coinage and currency. Yeah, usually coins at the as, as you enter. Well, that's what I do anyway. I just throw some yeah. coins and enter. And that's because of the ancient relationship through Mercury of both the psychopomp and the concept of currency that are tied together. Mm. Um, currency passes back and forth, moves very swiftly, um, and has those same ties to Mercury and Hermes and, and all of that, which is also the same ties to the psychopomp because it's the only... Spirit, God, divinity, planet, archetype, whatever, um, that can go to the land of the dead and come back because they're the messenger. You know, they can they can pass through. The rules don't apply to them. Uh, they get the privileges of the press kind of thing. Um, they can mm -hmm. also go to the highest heights uh, where the, the faraway spirits are also and come back. So the same kind of thing. It can range everywhere. And currency is also, um, you know, not only is it the, the symbol of trade, but it is the, the language past language. When you're trading with someone and you don't speak the same language, you can still barter. You can still make exchanges. And, mm. and that's part of that communication tie is that currency, uh, money, uh, trade, all of that is all tied in together into the same archetype. So I would not think that the spirit of the graveyard would be interested in blood. 
but mm. would be much more interested in something um, that ties into their archetype that they could use. Yeah, you know? Mm. All right, so then let's just have a look at this. If we are taking Graveyard Dirt, uh, what would you usually offer um, in exchange as a thank you? Um, I always give coins to there the grave. Well. Yeah. Um, usually I also have tobacco and water. But, like, if I'm going to disturb soil or, or move any plant matter or anything, I offer water every time. Doesn't matter what I'm doing. I can be planting things. I can be harvesting and wildcrafting. I can be getting graveyard dirt. I can be finding a shiny rock. I offer water. That's just, you know, if mm. I'm disturbing the natural world and, and fucking up some poor soil substrates life cycle, water is life. Um, mm. And, and on that reasoning, water is life for everyone. Blood is only life for us. Mm. Blood is not life for the soil. I mean, blood meal is great, and yes, it is nourishing and everything else, but if you drown a battlefield in blood, things don't live. Um, just like if you drowned it in seawater. Um, you know, that sort of stuff. So, mm. um, and, and tobacco, I've, you know, I'm from the Midwest. That's how the spirits of the land have told me to make offering. Um, and I have other plants that are similarly treated as sacred tobacco that I will offer. And it's not cured tobacco, by the way. It's not like pipe tobacco, because that's not helpful to the land. It's just dried tobacco leaves and sometimes flowers um, because they smell good. And, you know, they have um, not just uh, human altering properties but also um uh, what do i want to say here uh mycorrhizal environmentally altering properties they affect the the soil structure and they affect the fungi in the soil mm. okay uh so look Sappho said i do but anyways every time you guys are here i can never think of any questions and that's why you write them down <laughs> yep yep and um you can join our discord and we have a channel just for questions any time mm. of day any time of night you know 2 30 a.m <laughs> pop it into the questions <laughs> channel yep. And then we can all sort them out here as well. Uh, words have power is here. Hi, everyone. Uh, Hello. Many blessings and to you. And Yolandi asked, how important is it for a new witch to join a coven? Or is it better to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a teacher? Um, speaking about this recently, it's actually, I think it depends on the person and their own personality. Some people don't gel with a coven at all. Uh, other people enjoy the community, they enjoy the structure of it. Um, yeah. I, I would say, ideally, it would be wonderful if you could experience some one-on-one -on -one relationships with teachers and some uh, coven relationships in your life as a witch. That'd be mm. great. Um, 
as a new witch, if all the covens were great and they were a good fit, yeah, then everybody should join a coven. But that's not the reality. And um, you, you need the opportunity to be corrected. That's the necessary thing. You can get that through a coven. You can get that through a one-on-one relationship with a teacher. You can get that by taking classes. You can get that by being part of a community where that is an okay thing to happen, uh, that corrections are made lovingly and inclusively instead of you know flame wars and exclusion and canceling and that sort of thing. But that's the important bit. Um, when you're just reading books by yourself, or watching YouTube videos or, or whatever, you don't have the opportunity to be corrected because you'll never make a choice that you think is wrong that you can then correct, right? <laughs> we wouldn't make that choice if we thought it was wrong. So that's the important part is the, you have to have the opportunity to be corrected, um, which means you need to be discussing with someone somehow what you're doing and what your thoughts are and how it's going um, and how you achieve that through membership in a coven, uh, through relationships with teachers, whether that's like a, a apprentice kind of situation or whether it's more of a take classes, extended classes thing, which I think is the most common these days in my experience. People will take classes for a month or a year uh, with a group of students and one or more teachers. And that is the way. And that's very similar to the way a lot of covens have worked too over the years. It's just, that's not what we call it anymore. Mm. Um, so, but you don't have to go out and find a coven. Um, especially if there's not one that you can find that is a good fit. Good fit is more important than being in a coven. If it's not a good fit, you're not going to get good things out of it except some horror stories to tell and battle scars to show off around the fire later. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it does become a bit difficult because you could find a teacher who is fantastic or you could find a teacher who takes complete advantage of you. Um, but even in the case of a, a really good teacher, you're only going to get one perspective. You're only going to get one side of the story and you might end up limiting yourself. Um, whereas, again, well, not all covens are good. Um, even if they are good, you may join them and you may clash with the people in the coven. Um, so it's a case of trying to find a coven where you can build a community and have a family. And that's not an easy thing to do. Oh, it's no. It is not an easy thing to do. It is very, very difficult. And it takes a lot of time. Yeah. You know? People find witchcraft, they read a good book, and the next month they want to be in a coven. That is not a reasonable timeline. Um, mm. And covens don't last forever. They usually last five to seven years. That's mm. pretty average, healthy coven lifespan. And it's because in, in this day and age, many of us do not have 20 years of our lives to devote to a single coven. We move, jobs change, kids grow up. Um, you know, life happens. And mm. in modern times, it's very, very difficult to find 
13 witches who live in the same geographic vicinity for more than five years. Mm. And, and rarely I found our covens maintain the big numbers that they start with, like 13. It usually dwindles to like five or six people that are able to make the commitments and keep up with the work. Um, teaching covens can sometimes be larger than that because they have students coming in, but often those students come in, train, and leave. They don't necessarily all stay. Maybe one of a group will stay, but uh, usually they're, it's like classes. They're there for a while and then they're moving on. So, yeah. Mm. I don't know. It's a, like I said, my, my thing is it's important to be in a place where you can be corrected. And that can just mean having friends to talk to that are on the same journey. I would like to say, yes, study under an expert, but no one's an expert in everything. Mm. Uh, not by a long shot. And, and you should have multiple opinions in your life. You should read from multiple sources, you know, that sort of thing, and multiple teachers, hopefully. But there's nothing wrong with having a group of friends that are also beginning with you that you can talk about stuff with mm -hmm. just for the, um, you know, talking over concepts and, and that sort of thing, being able to, to talk through things, find rational, logical, share experiences. It doesn't, it doesn't always have to be um, a teacher student relationship. Yeah. Of course, the other side to this is to read the books and find people online uh, within groups. Um, I mean, that's, that's basically, that was basically my path. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of teachers and they didn't even know they were my teachers. Um, Robin Artisan was one. Peter Padden was one. You were one. Um, you know, your Kurvis I met personally because he, he lives... Uh, well, half an hour drive from me. Um, but I've had all these teachers, and what happened was I would join, back then it was Yahoo groups, which were a lot better than the Facebook groups, um, but I would watch the discussions that went on between these, between these experts, these people who knew what they were talking about, and they argued. They oh, yeah. bit into each other like crazy. <laughs> out of that came, came this, this amazing information. Mm -hmm. and these all became teachers. And then I could sit there and I could write an email and I could question them as well and say, you know, I've got this idea, is it a load of shit? Um, but, yeah, so it's not those formal one-on-one -on -one teachers and it's not a coven where you are getting multiple opinions from a group of people that you're close to, but you still have these teachers through, um, through text, through email, through groups, whatever it is. Um, yeah. But again, you know, if I'm trying to find those groups nowadays with those people in, also very difficult. Yeah. Mm. Yolandi says, I don't do well in groups and don't trust people very easily. So for me, it's very difficult. And then Deb and Papa mm. Me both said the same. And I will say same. Um, um, generally, I don't do well in groups. But the thing is, fit. Fit matters so much. And... If you don't do well in groups in our current society that has a very specific expectation of social norms, 
and group rules and hierarchies and that sort of thing, find a group that doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, they don't all operate that way, especially in the pagan communities and in, you know, the witchcraft and that sort of thing. Um, so I completely understand that don't do well in groups, have problems trusting people. My problem is I trust people too easily. I have a real hard time seeing people uh, being manipulative or duplicitous or anything like that. I just, I, I can't see it. Um, mm. <laughs> I'm one of those, uh, I think everybody at their heart is a good person and always will be. And I think everybody considers everyone else because it's what I do. We all have our own biases. But um, just because you don't do well in your average groups doesn't necessarily preclude um, finding a group or making a group that functions by a different set of expectations and rules and a different set of cultural norms where you would thrive. Um, so it's more work. Uh, but, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing well kind of thing. Mm. Yep. All uh, right, so let's see. Deb said tobacco offerings are used by the natives. Um, I think cornmeal or cornflour is also uh, one that a lot of people use. Uh, just throw it to the wind type of offering. Um, Schrodinger's Cats uh, said, Hey there, everyone. I am curious to know what you both think of interacting with nameless beings, doing a ritual for the ones who bring rain instead of a named deity. I think it's relatively the same thing, because um, when you're working with a named deity, it's often just a title or a, a allusion to that particular energy. Yeah, and I'll add that the vast majority of names that are out there for divinities aren't their names. Mm. Um, yeah. I have no problem working with, with nameless beings, divinities, ancestors, spirits, whatever. Um, I, I have no problem working with spirits that I don't speak the same language they speak. Mm. That they can't uh, communicate with me in English or, or Czech or Spanish or any of the other spoken languages that I have. Um, I don't think that's a big deal. Uh, the same mm. safety things always still apply, you know, always test the spirits, uh, keep your protections up, keep your cleansings up, that sort of thing. But names are something that come much, much later in the process. Uh, they're trust. They're, they only come with trust. They're built on years of trust and interactions. And it, it doesn't always come through as my name is, but more often you can call me. And mm. it might not be something we think of as a name. Uh, there's a, a river spirit I'm very fond of, and the name I call it by is a specific smell. You know, it's so... I don't think a name is necessary, and I don't think a name is something you get very early on in the process, if you get one. Not everything works that way, either. Not every mm. spirit or, or entity will have a relationship to that. Yeah. 
And I think, I mean, we, you know, talking about the the names that we use generally uh, that are public um, versus the names that we are given, not not everybody gets them. Um, you know, we can still continue to work with those. Like I'm going to say, Lucifer. Um, we can still work with the Lucifer or the Lightbringer um, or whatever various names you know somebody may have in their own tradition, yeah. and you. Still Still get the same interaction, um, but at some point you may be given a particular name. I was given a name which kind of encompasses all of the Lightbringers, um, and I can't really say fire gods or deities, but yeah, it was light's a different from fire. Yeah, it was a grouping of spirits. That had that all fit into, into that like Lightbringer aspect, but extended a bit further. But it was a name that encompassed all of them, rather than just one particular, a Lucifer, for instance. Right, and, and Lucifer is a great example. It's a title. It means Lightbringer, and uh, you know, in ancient times when Latin was the lingua franca, and therefore. It would have been used. Lucifer was a title applied to lots of different things in lots of different uh, situations. Now people mm. think of it as a name for a specific entity, but that's, I mean, that name got there because it was, because of some mistranslations and some mix-ups, but because it was being applied as a title to another um, entity as a form of analogy. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't think, I think working with nameless beings, nameless ancestors, nameless spirits is, is par for the course. It's going to happen at some point. And, and describing it that way, the ones who bring rain, uh, those who bring light, um, those who uh, teach fire, those who bring the medicine of calm. That's great. It's absolutely mm -hmm. the way it's been done for thousands and thousands of years. And it, it is, you know, that's who we want to work with. I don't know who you are, but I need rain. You mm -hmm. know, and I want to work with you and tell me what to do. That's how you start those conversations and relationships. You know, that's how you do um, that networking. Absolutely. So nothing wrong with it. Absolutely the way to go about things. And nothing scary about nameless entities or divinities or spirits or anything. In fact, I'd say in most cases, it's actually a, probably a better thing because we may think we want to work with a particular energy to achieve a particular thing. And then we go searching online for the god or the goddess or angel, demon, whatever, that we have to work with that embodies that energy and so we can get a name for it and therefore work with it. We don't need to. We can just work with the energy and give it, give it a, a t its own title, like the ones who bring rain. And yeah. the other thing is uh, don't pigeonhole. Just because you worked with this entity um, and it did ABC, you know, the goddess of love, doesn't mean later that when you ask for the goddess of war and revenge, it's not the same entity that shows up. Um, spirits do many jobs, just like we have many roles in our lives also. You know, to one person you may be a lover, but to another person you're a parent, and to another person you're an employee. 
and to another person you're a friend. You're still all of those things, but how you are called and what you are doing in each situation is different. And divinity, we experience very much like that. Mm. Yep. All right. Uh, Sappho uh, asked, what about spiritual workings? Would the universe hear the request better through the energy workings of many as opposed to only one? Um, I don't think it's a case of the universe hearing better. It's just it, it's, it's a case of more people working on the same thing raise more energy. Um, it's just a, a bigger boost. Uh, that reasoning, uh, the universe hears the request better through many voices than one, is exactly the reason that heathen rituals are community rituals. Yeah, um, okay. uh, that's the reason bloat is a community ritual. That's the reason sumble is a community ritual. Um, because many voices are louder than one. Um, and that is, that is how it is described, uh, quite literally. Um, and it has to do with sound and vibration and a bunch of other stuff under there and, and repetition. Um, but it's also focus. You get a bunch of people focusing on the same thing. The more people you have, of course, the louder you have, but the simpler your message must be. People don't hold complex ideas in common. They only hold very, very simple ideas in common. Mm. And it's only the tips of the icebergs underneath what they really think that idea means is going to be different from person to person. So, you know, um, it, it depends on your, your worldview and your frame of reference. But in heathenry, all, you can't do the stuff you do in Sumble alone. You can't sumble by yourself. It doesn't make sense. Mm. <laughs> you, you can't. Um, and you can't bloat by yourself. What would you bloat if you were by yourself? Mm. You can't do that. That doesn't mean there aren't things that are done individually alone in heathenry. But those type of rituals are not. Now, I don't know that that necessarily applies across the board to every kind of working um and, and like the idea of the raising of energy is not part of the heathen worldview there's not energy like there is in wicca or raising a cone of power or that sort of thing it's not the same concepts so that's part of it um that differentiation and an understanding of worldview but mm. <clears throat> The, the other problem is the complexity, simplicity problem. Um, you can get a bunch of people together, but you can't get them focused on a complex, nuanced idea. And so, hence, we have covens, the break-even point. You can usually get five or six people to talk about it, to work it out, to focus on this nuanced idea, and it's synergistic. The... Um, whole is more than the sum of its parts at that point when it comes to a magical working. There are absolutely advantages to working in covens. And why else would headstrong, individualistic, don't like anybody, don't touch me witches coven up? I mean, really, mm. most of us are very, very individualistic um, and not good with groups. That's part of what led us to being witches, is breaking away from the herd. 
breaking away from the groups, not feeling welcome in those, having um, trust issues with people around us, not fitting in. It's part of being a witch too. And so it takes an extra chunk of effort for the kind of person that can be a witch to be in a group. And that's why covens are often uh, for dedicated purposes. You know, we're going to get together. We're going to do this particular work. We're going to p- explore this particular topic. And the rest of your life, not in the coven, you do what you want. Just like if you're joining a, a tradition or training, um, you do the tradition when you're in the tradition space. Whether mm-hmm. that's with the coven or a teacher or whatever. Um, but when you're not there, you do whatever you want. There's no restrictions on what you believe or how you practice or, or what you research or how your magic works or anything like that. And it's because of that, that spirit. So yes, covens are, are more difficult for witches, but there are advantages and that's why we do it. Yeah. The thing about um, doing a, sim- a, a symbol or a, a bloat by yourself kind of reminds me of, I think it was uh, John Beckett that said, um, was talking about doing Sabbat rituals by yourself. Um, it's kind of like celebrating your birthday alone. It's no fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are some yeah. things that are just done in groups. And, mm. and those are community rituals. They're past the level of the intimacy of a coven. They're people that you see for holidays. Um, Mm. You know, they're people that you see for community building in that way, but they're not the kind of intimate bonds that are found in a kindred or a coven. Mm. Um, Deb said, I have to say, I have tried one protection spell and one asking for funding for the gardens that I am the coordinator for, and it came in my favor. Well, that's good. It's always good when they work. Um, and Yolandi said, uh, what I don't like about our community is how people get attacked because of their experiences being different from what others experienced. Uh, it's as if they shoot you down because you're new. It happens a lot on, online. Get the fuck um, out of those communities. Yeah. Because those aren't communities. Those are cults of personality. Mm. And they're just there feeding an ego egregore. They're not a community. Um, I know we use the word community here a lot. I use it a lot. Um, But I don't use it to mean people who also identify as heathen, pagan, witch, wiccan, whatever. Because that's way too broad. And that's how most people think of it. Because that's what we find online. I use it to mean people that, um, you know, you could call and say, hey, I'm moving. Can you come help? That's community. Uh, People that you could uh, talk to and have a cup of coffee and have a conversation um, about things that you share together. They're not Mm -hmm. just random people that you don't know anything about their life. And extended family. Yeah, extended family. And when someone comes into the community in that way, they don't come in alone. They come in through some other people that you know. There's a a line. Oh, you know Dave who knows Steve, and I'm friends with his wife, Amanda. 
Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be a super close line or, or anything like that, but there's some form of connection that way. And it's because all of this is relationship-based. Whether we're talking about spirits or people, it's all relationship-based. And those relationships are all one-on-one. So, you know, it, it's introducing people to your friends kind of thing, getting introduced to their friends and family. It is very much extended family. And that can happen online, but it doesn't happen by joining a Facebook group. And it, it doesn't happen by joining a Discord server or anything like that. We would like it to, but you have to build tighter bonds than that past that. And I mm. think that's part of the, the confusion. I mean, quite often we can find those people within the bigger groups. Um, the problem is there's so much. I mean, when you've got a group of four or 5,000 people, or I mean, there's some that are like going to the 300,000 people uh, type of area. You're going to get every Tom, Dick, and Harry on there with everybody's opinion, trying to. You're going to get egotistical maniacs, um, people that just don't like you or you don't like them. It's a, it's an absolute mess. Um, but <laughs> if you can meet those people that you do feel close to, you do create a bond with through those groups. That's fantastic. But uh, you know, do need to find that small extended. Family. And it takes it takes some time to build those bonds and to find those people. And, you know, it, I understand it's frustrating. It, it's especially if uh, you're one of those people who reach out to somebody, spend months trying to build bonds, turns out they're a crank. And then you try it again. They're a jerk. And you try it again. And they're an asshole and so on and so forth. It gets really frustrating. And, and then comes do magic. You know, um, do magic to meet people that you could build a community with. Do magic to meet people that you can talk with. Do magic to, um, you know, and then go out into those larger groups with that magic on you so that you can meet those people that you will Mm -hmm. gel with, that you will fit with, that you will build bonds and have a productive relationship with. Mm -hmm. All right, should we take, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to Deb's question and Shoningus Cat's question. So check out the link in the description if you haven't already, and we'll see you in a minute or two. Top up your hot chocolate. Yeah. Welcome back to into the wildwood and uh today we're doing another interview. so uh if you want to advice on anything ask us in the live chat uh let's get to uh, deb's question so traditional witchcraft does not use energy like wiccans um i'd say they do not exactly the same yeah it's is that in my reference to talking about how in heathenry we don't have the same concept of raising energy like Wicca does? Because uh, heathenry uh, and traditional witchcraft aren't the same thing. Um, but traditional witchcraft uses energy um, and, and moves energy and has concepts of energy uh, similar to the way Wicca uses it in magic. Perhaps not as refined because Wicca has more 
ceremonial magic influence. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has a lot of um, concepts of energy and movement of energy and, and pure manipulation of energy in it that I think um, has been an inherited thread in Wiccan philosophy and practice that probably isn't there in traditional witchcraft. I do think the one big energy working or similarity would be the cone of power. Um, I know Wiccans use that term a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, traditional witches don't usually use the, the similar, it's the same term. I mean, it's usually treading the Yeah, um, but it is the same concept uh, of raising that cone of cone of energy to project something out. Mm -hmm. Depends which how you're working it. Treading the mill is almost always designed to move the practitioners. It is yeah, the, the the engine that allows us to go on the journey, like a horse or a car or something that allows us to go much further than we could if we were just going by ourselves. Mm. Whereas raising a cone of power to send it out in Wicca does not involve moving the practitioners anywhere. It is raising a bundle of energy, charging it for a purpose, and then releasing it to go do its thing. Mm. And I think those are two distinct things. The The cone of power goes along with uh, Wiccan practice and philosophy and worldview, and treading the mill goes along with uh, traditional witchcraft. And while they both involve going around in a circle repeatedly, and chanting and getting exhausted, um, they are not the same thing. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken about this quite a lot in the past, um, but I'm seeing it more and more in modern writings. Um, people talking about traditional witchcraft and treading the mill. And I'm currently re reading um, Jason Mankey's book, Interpretive Witchcraft. Um, <laughs> And it really is very much focused on what he's calling Wiccan witchcraft. But he brings traditional witchcraft into it slightly and relates it to the cone of power. And I'm seeing it from a lot of different people in modern writings, um, this crossover between the two. Well, there's bound to be, um, you know, influence and, and borrowing and crossover and everything else. I mean... You know, especially as more and more books are written, more and more podcasts are made, more and more information is available from one group to another for new practitioners. Uh, I'm sure that the lines will blur and there must be something new emerging. Mm. I'll, I'll probably still be over here with my stick in the mud, uh, mm. maintaining two separate things, having been trained in those two separate things and seeing them as very different processes, feelings, and goals. Yeah. They don't feel no, the same to me. I've done them both repeatedly, mm. and I would not say they're the same thing. No, I agree with you. I think, I think where the, the interpretation of the two is getting um, mixed is probably because you all are moving in a circle. Um, the one's usually treading, the other one's usually dancing. Um, so one's a very slow process, the other one's a very vigorous process to try and raise that energy. Mm -hmm. So they do, they are very different practices, but because of that movement in a circle, I think that's what, what people are, are 
crossing the two practices and saying that they're the same thing. Well, I mean, it's just like people say, um, Wiccans cast a circle and traditional witches lay a compass, as if those were remotely alike. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not. Um, mm. Circle casting is a different process. Again, it has a different goal, uh, and it feels very different to be in a circle versus compass lying. It's a totally different process. Yes, there's still a circle involved, um, but it has a completely different goal. I mean, mm. worlds apart, the goals don't even overlap in any way at all. Um, and it feels very different to be inside of a compass versus inside of a circle. Mm. So just because it's, it's going around in a circle doesn't mean it's the same thing. I mean, yeah. uh, the stations of the cross go around in a circle too in some churches. It's not the same thing as treading the mill. Mm. Yeah. All right. Shredding those cats. Rev Kai, what is your understanding of Megan? Maine. Is it Maine? Okay. Um, I don't see many heathens talking about it. So... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I've seen lots of humans talking about Maine. It's just a different spelling that I'm used to. Um, might and Maine, might is spelled M-I-T, not M-I-G-H-T, are, are both life forces. And uh, they're understood to come in varying doses and varying people, but everybody gets a little bit. Um, I usually... Uh, illustrate it with the uh, two-part epoxy thing. You know, one side's hardener and one side's the epoxy. I don't know what it's called. The hardener and the other stuff. <laughs> right? Yeah. And if you, if you mix... what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but you can mix those in varying proportions and you get different results. Uh, might and main is the same kind of thing. They're part of our bits of our soul. Uh, might is physical life force. Um, when somebody or something just is exuding life and uh, growth and that energy of just, you know, um, abundant health. Maine is spiritual life force and is also often translated as luck and for quite some time was called craft um, and is where we get to how we get to calling it witchcraft um wise craft is being wise about having and manipulating your main so your main is um just like your might both of these are things that you get some you get some natural reservoirs of but you can manipulate them in your life you can build them up you can deplete them, you can let them go, depending upon the actions and choices you take in your life. Um, if you want to build might, physical life force, you focus on health and, and a very healthy diet and good physical activity and, and all of those things, and that will build might. If you want to build main, you focus on spiritual health. You do your cleansings and, and you utilize your magic and you become a spiritually, magically, powerful person just like if you increase your might you become a physically powerful person so um they're both a kind of power i i 
really hesitate to use that term early on, though, without all of that back end, because people will think it's like, oh, telekinesis or um, clairvoyance or something like that. And it's not like that at all. But they are definitely like all parts of the heathen soul complex. They are things that you can manip manipulate and adjust. But everybody gets some base mix to start with. And that's the raw material you have to work with. But I think keeping in mind that it, it was called craft uh, in Old English. And it is where it is the craft in witchcraft. A lot of people think the craft is, you know, making things. Um, how we understand the word craft today. A repeated production of non-artistic uh, kinds of physical objects. But that's not where that root word comes from. It's from spiritual strength or spiritual um, force or um, spiritual luck also. Um, luck means a lot of things in uh, heathenry. It's a big category and might and main both fit into types of luck and kinds of luck. Uh, because they're things that you can change and, and move and... Uh, Manipulate, I need a better word than manipulate, grow. Grow or deplete, feed or starve uh, throughout your life. And having a lot of main is also uh, one of the descriptions for the shining ones. The people who shine, the people who shine forth, the people who are radiant. They have a great deal of main because it shows through. In their their shinyu, in in their radiant look, and in the lore, in a lot of the sources, we find things like Heimdallr was the whitest of gods, and people think that means he was like white, like how we understand whiteness today related to a skin color, but that's not what that means. It means he was shiny and full of mane. He was one of the craftiest of gods. He had great spiritual wisdom. And so, you know, it's important when you read the original sources that you have a full context for those kinds of things and you don't make the mistake of thinking white means the same thing as it does today and therefore it's justification for being a racist fuckknuckle. Instead, it means being shining, shining with this light. And that is main in that instance. And in fact, red is related to might. And that's part of the reason that Thor has red hair and a red beard, but also Loki because they have a lot of might. Cool. Uh, Deb said, do magic to do good. Hmm. Uh, Yolandi had to go. She got load shedding. That's a pity. Oh, mine starts at 10, I think. Um, Sapo, I do magic for me. Laugh out loud. Seriously, though, I only used it once for my job because I try not to ask for too much. Um, there is, I mean, you, we have got that concept. We've had it for many, 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 many years. People coming around and saying, you should not do magic for yourself. It's all self-game. I, I think that comes from the Charmed. The Charmed Protestants. Sisters. Protestants mm -hmm. and Calvinists. That's where it comes oh, from. It comes but, all the way back there. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I can see it promulgated in, in Charmed. 
and that sort of thing. And I got to tell you, no, that's not the way magic works. Mm. There's no um, arbiter with an abacus in the heavens keeping track of how often you ask for yourself and how often you ask for others. And I would say that you yourself should be the most frequent and uh, most malleable target of your magic. 99.999% of magic I do is on me. Because mm. it's, it's <laughs> you know, uh, what needs to be changed and what I can most easily change is way easier to change me than it is to change other people or especially manipulate great swaths of environment like winning the lottery and, and that sort of thing. That's really hard to do because mm. there's so many wills involved. Um, but that doesn't mean magic for selfish purposes. I mean, that's why we have the legend of Fafnir and all the other dragons and, and the great consumers and, and that sort of thing. Being a selfish prick will remove you from the web of relationship. Whether you do it by magical means or any other means. And when you are removed from the, the web of relationship and you are no longer in the cycle of giving, you turn into this hideous thing. Not a person anymore. Greed corrupts absolutely. And in heathenry, we talk about dragons. That's how that ends up. But um, I was just uh, reading Braiding Sweetgrass recently. And, you know, in Potawatomi, that's the Wendigo. The mm. consumer that is always hungry and never satisfied. That hungers for more and more and more. And so the thing is, it, there's no special ethical rules for magic. The ethics are the same whether you're using magic or not. Because magic is just a tool. It's not some special set of powers that only a few people get. And therefore it must be, you know, have these different ethics. Everybody can do magic. And everybody does to a certain extent. Maybe not consciously. Or, you know, with forethought. But it's the same ethics as everywhere else. So I don't see any problem in taking advantage of every opportunity to have a better life. Great. Just don't be a jerk about it. Make sure that you give back. Make sure that you're in a reciprocal relationship with the powers you're interacting with, with the land you're dwelling on, with the food you're eating, with the people that you are in relationship with. And, you know, just because I do a lot of magic for me doesn't mean I don't do magic for other people. Our Yule ritual every year, before we head into the, the 12 days of darkness and protection, I pretty much bless everybody I've ever met <laughs> by the time we get through that ritual. Uh, because every time we hang a glass ball on the tree, we speak a blessing into it for someone. And we go until we can think of no one or anything else to bless. You know? There are, but I can do that because I've done magic for me. Because mm. I've built up my mane to the point where I can speak blessings and have them become reality. That's To me, that's part of the point of, of pursuing my craft. Is to build up that spiritual strength to to link um to link my logos to manifestation mm. that's an important part of the craft for me and 
I wouldn't be able to return gifts if I hadn't worked for myself in order to do that. So, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup, all of this kind of stuff. You need to fill your own cup first, but then you absolutely do pour it out for others because you have taken care of yourself, because you have made sure that you are a fountain instead of an empty cup. Yep. Uh, let's see, Richard said uh, to Deborah, um, even baneful magic can be good if used for the right reasons. I completely agree with that. I think, you know, when, when we use, use the word curse or hex or baneful magic or those type of things, we immediately um, think that it's just to do bad things. Um, not always. And you can curse illness. You can... You know, there's many, many ways to, to look at it. I mean, you can even do what I remember years ago. Um, I was always bring this up. Um, I had a couple white witches who thought that I was a very angry person, and they decided they were going to pray for me. Yeah, no, it was a. I was, it, was, it was. I was doing a demonstration on on a group. Um, somebody was talking about using particular energies and this and that, and I, I said, well. You know, you can use anger. You just have to transform it. How do you how mm -hmm. do you get angry when you are angry? So I started saying things to this person to get them angry, and then I was misinterpreted as I'm an angry person and a hateful person. And so they they decided they're going to pray for me, and I said, well, I didn't ask you to, so please don't, because that that that's against my wish, my will. <laughs> like, oh no, I. I... When other magic workers do that kind of stuff and tell me they're going to pray for me, I'm like, thank you for turning over your energy to me. I'll use it as mm. I see fit. Because that's mm. my job, to transform energy and transmute things, right? If I can't do that, mm. what am I doing? Just like anger into something else. So anytime anybody's going to pray for me, I bring it on, man. Cool. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do that more now, but Back then, it was kind of like, you know, oh, you white witches and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Oh, that was uh, something my, my grandmother taught me early, early on. She was one of those, uh, definitely, we would call a witch these days, but how dare you say that to her face back then? Mm. But, yeah, she, she taught me that through compost. Mm. Compost transforms everything takes rotten garbage food and sticks and weeds and things you don't want and turns it into the richest soil that will feed your life. You better figure out how to do that quick because mm. the world isn't going to present you with nourishment and richness. It's going to present you with crap and rotten food and junk you don't want and weeds. It's your job to figure out how to transform it. Mm. Yep. Um... Sappho said, uh, I love trading them all. Yeah. Cool. It's fun. <laughs> it's, great practice, yeah. it's nice to have some, some fun things that we do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Which makes me think of, I've seen so many warnings lately for people that are talking about guided meditations or astral projection, and they're like, don't do this too often, you'll get addicted. I've seen that a lot. Actually, yeah, I think now you mention it, I think I've come across people saying that. And it, it always kind of 
it makes me think, well, why would it be addictive? Because we know mm. that addiction is born out of a loss of connection, right? And so if you get the connection, if you get the community, if you get all of that through astral travel, but you don't get it the rest of the time, then of course it's going to be addictive. And seeing those pop up everywhere more and more just makes me yet more and more focused on the thing we all very much know is true, that we're more alone than we ever were. Everyone mm. is lonely. Yeah, that's the new epidemic is loneliness and disconnection. And I think it's because of lack of establishing the the one-on-one -on -one experiences, the one-on-one -on -one connections. I mean, we were just talking about, you know, joining groups and getting shot down when you have a different experience. It's rejection and all of these things. And we're seeking connection in ways that that won't provide connection. They will feed the ego egregores. They will feed, you know, the the machinery of loneliness and drive the addiction so to speak but i mean is it addiction to want to be connected we're humans mm. we're hardwired for that yeah well shoning as cat said what i was going to actually say um he said uh if you're trying to escape using those experiences and i think that's the problem is people are they're finding it's it's very similar to what we used to we were spoken about um, doing astral temple work, especially group astral temple work, um, and going there too often in the beginning when you're a beginner, because it can drain your energy, um, because that energy gets passed on, passed through to the a different area. And I think it's probably similar because it's such a wonderful thing to do. People use it to escape this reality, and they just don't want to come back here. Um, in fact, there's that, uh, uh, what's it called? The new practice, uh, reality shifting that the kids have been doing. I haven't heard a lot about it lately, but it was a big thing about a year ago. Um, all the kids, and especially on, it was especially prevalent on TikTok. Um, ship, Reality shifting is basically moving yourself into this fantasy world, and it can be Harry Potter or whatever fantasy world you want to go into. And there was actually a part of that practice where you shift your consciousness into this other reality, and you don't come back. You stay there. Um, and, you know, relating that to doing astral temple work and being in the astral permanently is going to be a bit of a problem. I mean, that's all the same thing. Every generation, mm. we all come up with new words for the same things all the time, you know. Um, that's part of, part of the problem with uh, trying to learn witchcraft vocabulary. Mm. <laughs> every generation names it something new. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I suppose from that perspective, we, I can understand why people are saying it can be dangerous. And yet, um, through Orientalism and fetishization, we have the, uh, you know, Tibetan monks that spend years in meditation and have checked out of their physical bodies, and it's seen as a great achievement. It's the mm. same thing. 
Mm. So apparently you get to do it if you're old and brown and on a mountain, but not otherwise. Yeah, but even in a case like that, I mean, their bodies do deteriorate. Well, yeah, if you're not maintaining the body, it falls apart. That's just... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can't get around it. I don't know uh, what what the expectation is there. That you get to go be <laughs> in some other reality, and this one is fine? I mean... <laughs> Yeah. You know, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe people are feeling that loneliness and they're using it to escape, and they just don't want to come back to this reality. So, I, I understand that. Mm. I mean, it's really hard to look around at the world today and decide you want to be here. Mm. You know, that's not a conclusion that a rational, logical, emotional mind comes to. Yeah. This is this is where you want to be, and I, I mean, I wish everyone was invested in making this a place where everyone wants to be, through care mm-hmm. and connection and healing, and that's and there's a lot of people that are absolutely, um, but when you're young and you're new, and I, I completely understand checking out. Yeah, yeah, it's very sad, really. It is. Um, the reality of our, our modern day world is very sad. The number of people mm-hmm. who are lonely and disconnected. I mean, just to to look out across crowds of people and look at these shrunken, weakened, damaged auras and the depression and, and the, the gunk and the parasites that are all over everyone. And, and no one is healthy. No one mm. is healthy, and, and no one is happy. Very, very rarely. And I'm not talking about the differentiation where you can see a witch from a hundred miles away because of the shining light and the witch's mark, kind of thing. I'm just talking about just average people. Mm. They're so much sicker and miserable and depressed than they were twenty, thirty years ago, mm. and it's really, really sad. It's really sad. Yeah. Uh, Craig is here. Hello, Craig. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, Shredding this cat's ass, do you guys have any recommendations for training the subtle body? Um, Franz Barton springs to mind. It's a good Firstly, one. Firstly, how, how are we defining the subtle body? Hmm. No. I think uh, I think I probably went to Franz Barden because I think that's the terms he uses mm. in uh, training for the magical initiate. Um, but the the astral body, the and the etheric, often the subtle body is simply contrasted to the gross body, not meaning mm. icky, but meaning composed of physical matter. And the subtle mm. body is other, everything else. The yeah, that's what some people call it the double as well. Mm, uh, yeah. Right. But also, I mean... I should Google and make question. sure I know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. So my initiation into hermetics. That's Biden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is a very broad question, because uh, training for what? 
Exactly. <laughs> good point. Good point. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, there's also like a good uh, training method in uh, Book of Shadows by Ed Fitch from the Pagan Way material. That was considered early outer court training. That's just basic magical training. Um, but like by lesson, you know, four or five, it gets into basic astral projection uh, and the development of a magical will and a uh, astral identity. All those sorts of things are, I think, necessary steps along the way, probably because I took them. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, how do you speak to an experience you haven't had, right? Mm. Um, I mean, for astral projection, I'd actually recommend Robert Monroe. Mm. Uh, I was found it. But then that's somebody I read, I think I was 14 years old, so that was my introduction to that whole topic. Yeah. Um, but if it's astral temple work, yeah, that's completely different. If it's journey work, that's a different method, different way to get there. Um, True. Uh, so, yeah. Depends I, what the training's for. Trying to think. I think it was Robert Monroe, early um, training in, in astral projection and, and that sort of stuff. Mm. He created the Monroe Institute. I actually bought his book uh, again recently. Uh, I can't read that far. Journeys Out of the Body, I think it's called. Uh, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the original thing I started with was written by Monroe, Robert Monroe, mm. for astral projection and getting out of the body. Craig and, said, oh, sorry. Right, Craig said, uh, Bob Marley's said, make your heaven on earth. Appreciate your environment and don't clutter it with unnecessary worries. Couldn't agree with that, yeah. I heard Bob Marley mentioned and quoted on two different podcasts I was listening to while I was working in the garden this morning. I wonder mm -hmm. if he's He's having a synodic return or something. <laughs> the third time someone has mentioned Bob Marley. Not in the context you'd expect Bob Marley to come up, but here we are. Mm. <laughs> interesting. Obviously, obviously trying to grab your attention. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go listen to some Bob Marley songs after this, I guess. <laughs> See what he has to say. <laughs> um. Tronius Cat said, I'll check Franz Barden. I've read some of his work before, but not focused on the subtle body. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Franz Barden does focus a lot on the subtle body. Um, what's the. Con oh, it's condenser. That's the word I'm thinking of. Fluid condenser. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't know why why that popped into my head, but I just had to remember the word. Yeah, um, I was so excited the first time I made a fluid condenser that worked because it was literally the magical fluid I could put on everything. <laughs> it was like discovering your favorite spice mix that you now want to put on everything you eat. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Oh, I was so excited. I put it on everything. I put it on doors. I put it on me. I put it on friends. I put it on tools. I laugh. That's when you do this. What happens if I do this? 
What happens if I put another pillow? <laughs> Just imagine yeah. you running running down the street with a bottle. Fluid condenser for all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's uh, what my coven mates thought um, <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I was always the one that would show up to class <laughs> for the new moon with a box of shit. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Look what I made in the last month. Who wants to be a guinea pig? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're always like, oh my god, not again. <laughs> I have this instance, I think, I think, will transport us to this realm. Anybody want to try? Right. Just coming back to the subtle body thing. If it, if it has astral dreaming, dreaming work, hmm. um, you know, Castaneda uh, is a good source as well for that, I think. Um, there's a lot, really. But those are the ones that pop into mind for me anyway. Monroe and Castaneda. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I can't really think of uh, anything else that's highly focused on it. Uh, Craig asked, anyone read Ophelia, The Art of Astral Projection? I found it really good. Actually, I put that on my list and I haven't read it yet. But have you read that one? Because it was recommended to me a while back. I don't I know. It was written, uh, Craig, was it, wasn't it written in the 70s or 60s or something? There are a few, three books by Ophelia. Ophel, or Ophiel. Ophiel. Oh, now that I look at the cover, yeah. I've read that. Mm. I do not remember it being terribly striking. That doesn't mean it was bad, just didn't stick for me, I guess. Yeah. I do find they all repeat themselves, though. So, you know, yeah. if you've read a couple of books on astral projection, you're going to find the same similar methods in others. Uh, same with dreaming, you know, put a cord on your wrist and or check your hands out every hour, or, you know, it's always the same advice. Well, I mean, that's what works. You just got to find mm. the author, the book, the podcast, the whatever, that, that speaks the language you're speaking and, and comes through in a way that you can understand, you know? Mm. That's, that's all it is. It's not finding the right one or the best one or anything like that. Um, it's just the one that, that is speaking the language that, that makes sense to you where you are. Mm. Uh, Deb's quoting Marley. Don't worry about a thing, because everything, every little thing will, is going to be all right. Um, yeah, Craig said yes in the seventies. Uh, he did a few. He covers the different selves, hmm. and that might be interesting. That's always an interesting topic. So it's so different all over the world. Oh yeah, that is yeah, that differs greatly. Mm. by culture and time and everything, how we divide it up. Mm. But it's not just, I don't think it's just the, you know, um, the parts of the soul. It's also when we look at the, the subtle bodies, um, we have the, or the energy bodies, we have the physical, the mental, the emotional, um, and the astral or, what was it called? Etheric. The etheric body. Yeah. Was etheric. So here's my thing. 
I've studied mm. lots and lots of these, you know, the divisions of the bodies, the astral plane, the etheric plane, all of that sort of stuff, the heathen soul complex. In experience, do you experience a differentiation between the astral body and the etheric body and the mental body and all of these things? Me neither. Mm. It, it's in the meat suit or out of the meat suit. That's all I got. Mm. <laughs> and I, I've never been able to make a distinguishment more than that. I will add that I can uh, sense the subtleties of the fetch. And that the fetch is part of my soul, but it's different from me. Mm. You know? um, independent of me in a certain way, but still very much part of me. Mm. And that's not astral body or physical body. It's something else. But that's, that's all I got in experience. Got a lot in theory. Um, mm. You know, and, and describing things like the woad and the might and the men and the uh, all, all of that sort of thing, but that's all theory. I can't uh, necessarily have of um, an experience that I have not had an experience that differentiates those nuances mm. in a way that I can point to. See, I think when it comes to the etheric body. Um... I mean, this may differ with you, but what I find is that the etheric, because we, you know, the etheric body is like an inch or something, just yeah, above the, the little, physical. Well, you know, it's like the, right there. <laughs> um, but that's the blueprint of the physical, and I think that stays with the physical. Uh, it's what I may, might call the guardian chi. Um, you know, after reading stuff about qigong, um, and. I don't, I don't feel that's it's... the same as the astral, but at hmm. the same time, they're all the same body anyway. Right. You know, I, now, see, really I've, I've watched people's etheric body, if that's what we're going to call it, the little glow, you mm. know, that's just outside, leave when they astral project. Mm. It, like, drains out of them one way or the other, out of the head or out of the feet, however they're getting out, I assume. Mm. Uh, of course, I can't watch it happen to me because <laughs> I'm doing it when I do it. Um, mm. But you said the etheric is the blueprint for the body. I'd always heard that was the astral is the blueprint. I have heard it as being the etheric. Hmm. Yeah. See, it's a... This, this <laughs> is where, where, where we differ, but are the same at the same time. So Right. Uh, it's still... It's just vocabulary, really, because mm. we're having, I assume we're having very similar experiences from what we've talked about and how we describe things, but. I think we've just come to understand the, the terms in different ways, maybe. Because, I mean, if I think of, if, if the etheric body is the same as the guardian chi, I wouldn't consider that we are able to actually move that away from the physical, because if we do that, we have no protective barrier on the physical. So that could mean that the etheric and the guardian chi are not the same thing. I just consider them to be the same thing. Um, well, many stories are about, though, that people that go astral projecting and then their body is vulnerable while they're gone. That's, yeah, but, that's very frequent, too. Something can get in. 
something can take over. Uh, sickness is more readily um, able to to get in and take hold when frequently mm. astral projecting. Mm. Yeah, don't know. Something to explore a bit further. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Right. And, and you know, all this we're quibbling over. It's purely mental masturbation because <laughs> mm. whatever we call it, we're still doing the work and, mm. and having the experiences with or without the vocabulary for it or the nuance of this is the etheric and this is the astral and this is this bit and this is that bit. And, you know. Mm. Yeah. That's no, fun to discuss it though. Oh, it absolutely is. I just... Since we're on the advice for the new witch show, I want to make <laughs> sure that people understand that it's not important that you get the right term or the right thingy or whatever. That doesn't matter. Mm. It's just vocab. It's just how we're doing our best to language things to pass on um, understandings and concepts. So you can still do all of this. And and have these experiences and do this kind of work without any of this theory or um, terminology or any of that. And and it doesn't, mm. especially, does not have to be right in some way, because that's not a thing. Mm. As long as you're doing it. Um, uh, Craig said, uh, "I've seen myself on the astral astral." Astral plane, um, I realized I have a big nose. I think I look really short. Weirdly short. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but that's that perception of myself on the astral plane, like I'm too short. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's a bit weird when you get there. Nothing's yeah. the same, though. So. Oh, no. Not at all. Yeah. I look Changing. nothing like this. <laughs> the astral <laughs> plane. A little bit. <laughs> nope. Well. All right. It doesn't look like there's any more questions. Um, anything you wanted to mention, or should we end today? I think we'll be done for over an hour and a half. I, I don't... Um... I don't think I have anything I wanted to mention. Okay. Not that my right. my brain's really here today. <laughs> and though we are, we are still wilted. Yeah. Still wilted. <laughs> I can talk about, you know, magic and concepts and things up there, but if it's real time events, sorry. <laughs> I'm really into that right now. <laughs> all right. Um all right, so we're gonna end today. Um We'd, I'm not sure if um, we're going to have a live show or a recorded show next week. If we do have a live show, we're going to talk about evil. Evil. And we're just leaving it there. We're not going to put it in a box or anything like that. We're just going to talk about evil. Okay. Come on. Probably good. Oh, wait. Sapo said, wait, wait. 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 What are we waiting for? And the clock ticks, tick, 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 tick. This I know, is there, the there is a delay. delay yeah, yeah, there is a delay. Uh, a Tradcraft book recommendation. Ooh. Uh, uh, Peter Padden's book. Uh, uh, yeah. 
Grimoire for Modern Cunning Folk. There you go. Love yeah, that. That's my that's favorite. That's a good one. Grimoire for Modern Cunning Folk. That's a good one. Mm. Um, yeah, think... uh, the Devil's Dozen by Jim McGarry, the one with the red cover, the horn god mm. on the front. I think that's what that one is. Mm. That's my problem. Nothing. I only remember book covers. <laughs> Anything by Jim McGarry, really. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, she does focus a lot on uh, Cornish craft and the Cunning Folk. Um, but great to learn from those perspectives. Yeah. Um, also, I got to include, you know, uh, Q-Tub and The One by Andrew Chumbly. Um, that was so, so difficult. Sabbatic craft is probably not the thing that a vast majority of traditional witches are interested in, but it's my jam. So I got <laughs> to add that it's, stuff in there. <laughs> it's really interesting. I think because um, uh, I'd have to pick pull it up, but I don't know where it is. Andrew Chumley did write a lot of articles which got published into books, and they're fantastic to read. Yeah. But when it comes to the grimoire stuff, oh, no. It's like, way over my head. <laughs> I, I think it's because I, I started cutting my magical teeth on Crowley that mm. I find Chumley's and Shulky's work very familiar kind of structure. Um, mm. It is, it's a different language. Yeah, you know, totally. it, it's not written in modern English. It's written in modern English witchcraft. <laughs> it's, and you need a vocabulary behind it in order to understand what's going on. Because, you know, mm. uh, there will be a sentence like, I stand here arrayed in the adamantine light of 10,000 suns. Well, arrayed means something very specific. Adamantine light means something very specific. 10,000 suns means something very specific. You know, yeah. and you need mythological background to go with those to understand yeah. it. I found, I found that every sentence I would read, I would have to spend like a month just trying to decipher it. <laughs> oh, that's one reason I really liked it. I really liked mm. it because of the, the depth. And I, it's the same reason I enjoy uh, studying skaldic poetry because there's that mm. same depth involved. You know, um, Rough we run over sea swan roads, you know, phrases like that. I just the poetic imagery and the the many many layers on which it can be understood, and how much is communicated in that that short little piece of, of verse and rhythm. I mm. I find that stuff all terribly fascinating and quite enjoy it. But if you don't want to spend a month per sentence. Uh, <laughs> That may not be the, the thing for you. Mm. I enjoy that bit. Um, <laughs> not everybody does. <laughs> um, I'd also recommend uh, go back through our channel and check out our uh, book talk. Mm. Uh, where we talk about books we've read. Um, we don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily tradcraft focused, but um, I'm sure there's some tradcraft books in there because. I know I talked about uh, some of Emma Wilby's books at some point and um, the Pharmacopoeia series by Daniel someone. Oh, I should know that. Again, brain not plugged mm. in. Right, we have to tell you as well now. Uh, maybe not. Say that again. Dale Pendle. Dale Pendle, there we go. The Pharmacognosis series. Three books. Anything by uh, Daniel Pendle. 
Nigel Jackson is also good. Oh, uh, yes. But I think, isn't it Nigel Jackson who's gone to the dark side? The dark side being Christianity. No, I'm sure I don't was, think so. No, the, the, really? uh, I saw Robin Artisan talking about it recently with a group of people. Um, I'm sure it was Nigel Jackson. Because it was a Nigel. It was one and of the Nig Nigels? It's Nigel yeah, Pinnock, Nigel, Nigel Jackson, and Nigel him. Jones. No, I'm sure it was Nigel Jackson. But anyway, anyway, regardless of that, his books were fantastic. Call of the Horn Piper was Nigel Jackson. I, I think so. Mm. Pick up all the Nigels. <laughs> Mm. Uh, uh is uh, usually more historical kind of stuff. Um, and Nigel Jones has a few out that are experiential. But yeah, yeah, good books. I'm trying to think of anybody else off the top of my head. Um, Roger J. Horn's great. We still mm -hmm. need to discuss that on Book Talk, but I did do a book review on my channel. Um, I need to get his other books because this this book was brilliant. It was fantastic. Loved it. Uh, very much immersed in traditional witchcraft and and folk magic. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah I'm sure there's there's many more <laughs> wonderful books out there that we're not thinking of. Just because, man, I always feel like I need another twelve hours in the day to read the books that I want to read. I mean, yeah. my two read stack is is massive, and of course now it's digital, which like. Damn you, scribed! I can co collect <laughs> a hundred books because it's always like, if you like this book, here's five others you'll like for every <laughs> book I read. <laughs> click, 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 click. Yeah. I want to read that. I want to read that. I want to read that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I always feel like I, I will never, I will never finish my to read list ever. I've even been working yeah. on a spell to. Um, not only read faster, but like absorb books through osmosis while I sleep with them. I know it sounds silly, but I'm <laughs> desperation is a driver of magic. <laughs> and, uh, walk, walking through the library. I mean, it's how it works in the Akashic Records. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I go to the Akashic absorb Records, it. I just have to like be in the book and then I know what the book says and I would like to do that with some, some physical books also because <laughs> I would like to read more a little more quickly and and I mm. speed read already but yeah ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, the great pursuit of every witch a spell to make you just absorb books by touching them <laughs> <laughs> I get it working, I'll share. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be super happy. Oh, yeah. It turns out it'll be some fucking microchip in our brains or some shit. But, you know. Uh, yeah, they're probably working on that already. You know, that'd be Just what would download help. It, download the information. Mm. It's like plant sales puppies, and here we can just plug a library into your brain, and I'd be like, well, maybe. Let me think mm. about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have our kryptonite, right? <laughs> All right. Let's stop talking shit now. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, Craig said he's looking looking forward to the evil episode. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to finish my hot chocolate now, so I'm going to say goodbye. Enjoy. We'll see you next time. Have a good Thank- one for now. Thank you all for spending your time with us this morning, evening, afternoon, whenever it is, wherever you are. Well, we appreciate this opportunity to chat with you. And I know it's a chunk of time that you could be reading books. So mm-hmm. thanks for exactly. being here. Okay. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us in the Wildwood. Meet us again next week for another episode And don't forget to check out our website at intothewildwood.com. That's Wildwood with a Y. And if you would like to support us, you can leave a donation on the website.